podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon, and the guest on the podcast this week is, well, it's me, actually. <laughs> Not that we're running out of guests or anything, but uh, I've had, over the course of my career, various uh, emails and tweets from people asking how I got into snooker journalism and commentary, so I thought I would allow my friend Michael McMullen to interview me about my career, which has now been 20 years I've been working in snooker remarkably, so I hope that uh, you enjoy it, and I hope that you continue to enjoy the podcast. One of the reasons I do this podcast is because, uh, quite genuinely, it's something that I, as a snooker fan, would like to listen to, because certainly with snooker players, if you see them being interviewed, it's usually five or ten minutes here and there on the television, very rare that you get a chance to hear in-depth interviews and, and conversations with people in the snooker world. So that's one of the reasons that I do it. I hope you continue to enjoy it. And now you can hear all about me. Right, off you go. This felt like such a good idea at the time, but go on, carry well, on. Well, indeed. We'll, we'll see if it still feels that way in half an hour or so. Um, you, you often start, Dave, well, you always start, really, when you're talking to players on this about how they first got into snooker. So let's st- start with that. How, how did it all start for you? Well, it was the 80s, of course, and it was on the TV all the time. And... I don't know, I just got into watching it. It's, I think people always find it hard to say exactly what, what they like about snooker, but something attracted me. And my family had a, and this again is an old story, a small table, half-sized table. Um, I'm not quite sure where it came from. I remember it didn't have any legs, so you had to put it on another table in order to play. So they you know, complain about rolling off and conditions mm. at the moment. Well, I tried playing in my garage uh, in the early 80s. But I don't know, I became sort of fascinated by it. And then we got a sort of proper table with... Again, a six-foot table with legs, which went in the front room. But the room wasn't big enough to, <laughs> to play. It was literally one of those things where you had to sort of jack the cue up the wall and all mm. that. Um, and then started playing in a club and so on and so on. And I just, I never kind of lost um, the interest in it. And, of course, because it was on the TV all the time, you know, you could, it became like a hobby. It was something you could, you could follow and every other week there'd be a tournament. And, and also, it was something that loads of other people were into. So you could talk to other people about it and sort of share it with other people. It can take over your life a bit, mm. actually, because so many tournaments are on and the matches go on so long and everything. But from that interest, when did you start to think, maybe this is something that could be a career? I'm not sure I did, to be honest. I was certainly not playing. You know, I was not a good player. My eyesight wasn't very good. Still isn't. Um, started wearing glasses when I was quite young. And, you know, I, this is why I have enormous respect for Dennis Taylor, because it's very hard play snooker in glasses so I never had any ambitions to be a player I always wanted to be a journalist um, not necessarily a snooker journalist um, but I, I guess I did have thoughts I mean when I was um, doing my A-levels or just finished doing my A-levels I actually tried to get work experience at snooker scene um, and it was in the summer and Clive pointed out there wasn't actually much <laughs> wasn't actually much work to experience mm. um, but I, I did go to Blackpool uh, to the Norbreck which is where I first met Phil Yates uh, so I would have been about 17, just to see how all that sort of scene worked. And bizarrely enough, it didn't put me off. Um, so I suppose I I never had sort of a burning ambition to be a snooker journalist or commentator. Um, but I certainly wanted to go into journalism, and I suppose it kind of in the end made sense that this is what I would end up doing. Yeah, you went in through a slightly unusual route, because, as I recall it, you saw an advert in the paper. Mm. They were looking for a junior press officer at the WPBSA, and you applied for that job, and and ended up working there alongside Bruce Beckett, who was yeah. head of media at the time. What, what was all that like? <clears throat> well, it, it was an example of how lucky I've been. And this has been a feature of my life, really. It was just right time, right place, because I came out of university, and every Monday in The Guardian, they, they may still do it, I don't know, they had a media job section. And I, would, I was getting that for about a month, uh, just sort of scouring jobs, applying for stuff, and got a couple of interviews, but didn't, didn't sort of land anything. And then one day I saw job that was literally perfect for me it said recent graduate 
journalism graduate, um, interest in snooker, and must uh, wanted to be junior press officer. So it was like the first rung on the ladder. And yeah, I applied. I remember going down. I got an interview. There were six of us got an interview, and among the interview, they asked sort of snooker questions, and it was literally like, "What's the yellow worth?" I mean, that's that was the level of it. And after I think I was the last person to to be interviewed, and, and Bruce said, "You're the only person who got them all right." So I knew that was a good sign. Um, we had to do a little writing test. Yeah, and I got it. And the thing about that was, I remember when because I'd followed the the red snooker scene, I followed the, the politics as well, and I knew there'd been trouble in the game. But when I left the the interview, Bruce said, um, he said, yeah, we're very, very optimistic about what's happening at the moment. He said, we've had a lot of strife, but we've got this new chief executive, Jim McKenzie. Everyone says what a good job he's doing. And, uh, you know, we really think we're turning a corner. I was then offered the job and I accepted. So I started about three weeks later. In the meantime, Jim McKenzie had been sacked and basically a civil war had kicked off just as I arrived in Bristol. And you were there. You were in that job for about two years. Mm. But the whole thing was just mired in politics mm. at the time. You just couldn't get away from it for a minute. No, and I was right in the middle of it because obviously I wanted to be friendly with the journalists. I was started as junior press officer. Bruce moved on. I was promoted, ridiculously, um, to, to sort of the main press officer. I needed to be friendly with the media, but at the same time, obviously, I'd been employed by the WPBSA, so I had to keep in with them. I remember one time in Aberdeen, uh, <laughs> I was having a drink with the journalists, so like Phil, John D, Trevor Baxter, you know, people I'd become really friendly with, after play, just in the bar, in the hotel, and what... WPSA board member came over, took me to one side, and he said, you're a disgrace, you are. He said, you're our press officer, what are you doing? And I said, I'm drinking with the press. You know, I thought I should, the idea was to cultivate a relationship, but that's what they were like, and it was, it was very difficult, not enjoyable, to be in the middle of politics. You, you know, people look back as if it was all a lot of fun. It wasn't, actually. It was actually very difficult, and it got in the way of what we were supposed to be doing, which was promoting the game. And in the midst of all that politics, as a result, you found yourself, as you say, surprisingly promoted to effectively running the press room at the World Championship <laughs> when yeah. you were 22. Yes, it was, um, it was crazy. I mean, I wasn't really up to it, I guess, but the thing was, all the journalists, including like the hard-nosed sort of tabloid guys who you would think would be out to get you, were really helpful. They really were. They saw me as kind of one of their own, and they kind of looked after me, which I really appreciated. Um, yeah, it was mad, really. Um, but, you know, you, when you're that age, you don't really think about it. You just get on with it, and it was... It was enjoyable to be there and be part of it. I mean, watched obviously the World Championship and all the other tournaments to suddenly be at them was, was great. But the politics and, and that WPSA side of it was not enjoyable. But you decided actually then, after that World Championship in 99, to you know, leave the WPBSA mm. and go out on your own, um, sort of working with Clive to some extent, but difficult enough to, uh, to carve out a living as a freelance snooker journalist. I think it was a big risk. I mean, I had a, a guaranteed salary, but the way I looked at it, you know, some people... They, they're good at jobs that they don't love. I wanted to find a job that I loved, that I could become good at. And I thought I'd c cultivated good relationships with the other journalists. There were bits of work here and there. I managed to get Talk Sport to hire me as their sort of correspondent. That was a little freelance gig. And I got to know Clive, and he was looking for someone. And he said, you know, we can put work your way. And I just thought, you know, I could, I could stay at the WPBSA. I'd probably end up getting sacked at some point, because most people do. Or I could be there like Ivan, who's the press officer now, has been there forever. Um, but would I really enjoy it? And I knew I wouldn't. So I thought, yeah, I'll take the gamble. And again, what happened was the other journalists who could, the other freelancers who could have sort of resented someone coming into their little club, complete opposite. They couldn't have been more helpful. They put work my way. And gradually, sort of over the years, I built up a little sort of stable of work. And, you know, it was like a sort of an apprenticeship in a way. And maybe, you know, you spoke about having good fortune at times, mm. you know, throughout it all. And maybe you had a bit more than about 10 years ago, because just as maybe the newspapers were starting <laughs> to lose interest in snooker a bit, 
you find yourself going in a whole different direction in some respects within the game, becoming a TV commentator with Eurosport. Now, how did that start for you? Well, again, it was just luck, really. Um, what happened was they just started doing sort of all the tournaments, and they only had two commentators. And Clive had been at Eurosport doing some billiards programme. And Simon Reid, who was the head of commentators and still is, he's in charge of booking all the commentators, he mentioned to Clive that they might be looking for to expand the team a bit. They were on the lookout for maybe someone else to come in, a couple of people to come in and take the load off the commentators that, that were there. So Clive put me in touch with him. I went down to do basically an audition. It was sort of an interview audition. Um, and then he said, I'll, sort of, I'll let you know if there's any work going. Um, a few months went by, I hadn't heard anything. And then suddenly out of the blue, he contacted me. He said, our, our main commentator, Mike Smith, is going to the Asian Games to commentate on cycling, I think, and it cla- it was on at the same time as the UK Championship, so they needed someone to do that. And unbelievably, bear in mind, I'd never commentated before for a TV channel. He said, would you like to do the week for us? Which, you know, was incredible. And I did it, and it went okay, I think. I mean, obviously, I was sort of thrown into the, to the, to the, to the midst of it. Well, that, that's what I was going to ask yeah. you about, just about those early efforts, because it's <laughs> funny, people who don't work in the media, I don't think, realise how little training there is Not, for most media yeah. work. So, f- with that, it, if you were to look back now on that, first week at that UK Championship and listen to your early commentary efforts then, I assume they'd probably be unrecognisable from what you do now. Yes, well, you, yeah, because you learn the discipline as you go on. I have to say Mike Hallett was very helpful to me. I commentated with him. He sort of showed me the ropes, looked after me. Um, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't want to listen to any of it back, put it that way. But it can't have been terrible because at the end of the week, basically they said, would you like to join the team? And I've been doing it ever since. So, again... Right time, right place. Um, I was very appreciative that they took the chance. You know, it, it seems an unlikely thing to do in a way. I'm sure there were p- other people in the queue in front of me who could have done it. But, you know, I, I, I enjoyed it. That was the thing as well. I really enjoyed doing it. And you, you learn as you go on. And, you know, I still make mistakes now. But uh, in those early days, you're just sort of learning the ropes, I guess. How long was it, do you think, before you really felt, yeah, I'm on top of this now, I know what I'm doing? I think probably by the end of that season, I ended up doing, obviously, the World Championship and doing the final of the World Championship, which again was incredible to do. It was uh, John Higgins, Mark Selby. And by then, certainly the nerves had gone. I was very nervous early on. The nerves had gone, and I sort of learned... I think a lot of it is learning when, when not to speak, really, and just learning that you don't have to just sort of keep chiming in. You do your thing, the player expert does his thing. And also in the media, as you know, if it's, good, it's a good thing if you don't hear anything back from people. So if you get no feedback, you're doing all right. You only ever hear from people if you're doing doing it wrong, and they all seemed happy with it. So I just sort of just sort of carried on doing it how how I sort of learned to do it. So what is commentary then? I mean, when you actually think about it, you know, it's obviously it's about the snooker match itself, and then you're asked to basically go and just talk over it again, as we say, with very little guidance as to yeah. what you're supposed to say. So to you then, what is commentary? What is the role of the commentator? I think my role is to provide context. So, for example, say Ronnie O'Sullivan's playing John Higgins, talk about what the match means in the context of their careers, previous meetings between them, what it would mean that we had recently the Scottish Open if Higgins had won, he would have gone ahead in the in the sort of all-time list and so on. A lot of people dismiss it as stats. It's not stats, it's information. And if as long as you don't bombard people with it and sort of plant it at the right time, it can help them understand what's happening. The player is there to discuss the shots, to talk about the snooker that's being played, but it's not just about that. I think 
the problem when you get two players commentating is it, it, it is just about that, and you lose the context of what the sort of wider meaning is. And the, the fact, again, maybe a stroke of fortune, you got involved with Eurosport about 10 years ago. Now, look how that's turned out. Yes. Eurosport has become... It's not down to me either, I can assure you. <laughs> but it's become the home of the game. Yep. They're now host broadcaster at a number of tournaments. I mean, it really couldn't have taken off any more mm. than it has. No, it's incredible. But it, what it shows you is the power of snooker, because we've seen it in, in the UK when we were growing up in the 80s, obviously you in Ireland growing up. You know, snooker became a big TV sport, and now that's happened You know, almost exactly the same way in Europe. All these countries that... 20 years ago, never heard of snooker, never seen it. Suddenly love it because it's the perfect TV sport. It provides such drama, such entertainment, you know, such a variance in frames. You can get a, you know, one full seven, then a great sort of scrap on the colours. And yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing really to, to think the way that it's taken over that network. I mean, we showed, it was worked out between October and December uh, of last year, 2016, something like 70% of all, all hours on Eurosport was snooker. Um, and getting big figures, and in, and in the UK, since we started doing more production around the home nations, the, the figures are going up and up. So you must have done hundreds and hundreds of matches over the last mm. ten years. Pick one out. Pick one out as the best. I think the most excited I've been commentating was when Steve Davis beat John Higgins at mm. the Crucible in 2010. Just because of what it meant. Obviously, I'd grown up watching Steve. You know, by then he had every right to be regarded as a spent force. And no one gave him a prayer of winning that match. And the last session I did was just thrillingly exciting. And the clearance, the little clearance he made, I think it was literally like green to black or something in the last frame. He took about five minutes over it, and it was just so exciting. I never have favourites. I never. The only performance I'm interested in is my own. I never root for anybody or anything like that. But it was. You, it's hard not to get caught up in like the emotion of that. Of that, you could see what it meant to him, what it meant to everyone at the Crucible. That was really, really exciting and thrilling. There's a lot of talk about standards in the game, and people say, well, are the standards better now than they were X number of years ago? Is there just more depth in the game? Are the top players better? Now, you, through your commentary on your sport, probably end up watching more snooker than just mm. about anybody. So what do you think? Where are the standards at now compared to, say, when you started 10 years ago commentating? <clears throat> I think there are more players capable of playing to a high standard. Uh, you very rarely get bad finals now. It seems that if you get that final tournament, you're playing... Great stuff. I think it, it's important not to get too carried away. You know, nobody's really playing to a better standard at the very top than Stephen Hendry was when he was at the top. You know, no one's really doing anything different to what he was. But there are more players capable of doing it. If you go back about 25 years, if you look um, at the centuries made at the Crucible, there might be like 30 centuries made. And probably 10 of them will be made by Hendry and maybe another five by Davis and another five by Jimmy. There wouldn't be that many players capable of knocking in the big breaks. There are now. Um, because they've all dragged each other up. So the world number 50 now would be a much better player, much better player than the world number 50 20 years ago. And that's why we see the old player come through the pack and, and, and you know win a tournament. So I think down the list, I mean, you know, you of qualifiers, unless you're watching the streaming or unless you go and watch, you only ever see the results and you think, you know, so-and-so's lost 5-2, he can't have played well. Then you get the match sheet. They might have had two centuries. You know, we saw the match last year with the Corin Wilson and Nancy Hamilton. It was six centuries in a row in a qualifier. That was just unthinkable, probably even 10 years ago. Um, so, yeah, I think standards are up. They have to be, I guess, because they're all playing so much more. They're going to drag each other up. And that's why to get to the top now it is difficult, I think. You know, you've really got to be not just good, you've got to be exceptional. Do you get much feedback from any of these players? Because they all watch a lot of snooker as well. I mean, do they ever come and say anything to you, complimenting you on anything, or even... <laughs> 
perhaps more interestingly, taking issue with something you've said? Um, what you tend to find is, if they take issue, they haven't actually heard it. Someone's told them something, usually wrongly. I remember a referee took me to task saying I got a rule wrong on a match I wasn't commentating on. Um, yeah, some players have said nice things um, privately, which is nice to hear. Um, but again, it's, the, it's I think it's the same as I said earlier. If you, it's usually better if you, if you just hear nothing. Um, obviously, I mean, it's, it's actually not quite as bad in snooker. You look at football commentators, they get absolute dogs abuse on, on Twitter and that sort of thing. I've been fortunate not to get that. But, you know, it's everyone has their own preferences when it comes to commentary. Some people enjoy, I'm sure, what I do. A lot of people, I'm sure, don't enjoy it. I can't help that. I just do it how I do it. And that's the same for every commentator. I think it's important, though, when you're commentating, not to intrude on people's enjoyment. You're there to hopefully enhance it. You're not there to ruin it. And it's certainly true compared to when we were growing up. Commentators talk a lot more. That's the style of modern broadcasting, um, whether it's too much is a matter of opinion, although when you ask people, I think most people think it probably is. What do you think is now going to be the future of snooker on television? Because it, it, basically, in terms of the actual matches themselves, it hasn't changed a great deal. Mm. I mean, it's still basically very much the same thing. I think you mentioned football there. Perhaps the commentary and the art of commentary and the way it's all presented has changed a bit. But it hasn't massively changed in terms of snooker, in terms of the actual match coverage <laughs> themselves. Do you see anything much changing in the years to come? I hope not, actually. Um, I think there's no point messing with the winning formula. I mean, obviously, it's built up over the years with more cameras now. I think the BBC, the way they do the last few days of the World Championship with, the, with that jib that swings into the table is fantastic. Um, but I think it's important not to overcomplicate things. What most people want to see is the table. They want to see the cue ball in particular, the next shot coming up. There's a lot of focus on sort of faces and reactions, the wife in the crowd, all that sort of thing. That has its place because it builds the drama. But you need to focus on the action on the table. That's ultimately what people want. And if it came to it, people would watch snooker you know, with a locked-off camera. We're doing the Championship League in commentary. We've got two cameras. That's fine. You know, People, people can watch it. Um, so I don't see it changing massively. I hope it doesn't. I think you sometimes see at Wimbledon and tennis, they'll have three commentators. That, to me, is always overkill. It doesn't matter that, that it's McEnroe and another great player. You know, it just, It's just too much. Uh, like I say, you don't want to intrude too much on, on the action, particularly in snooker, which is... A sport that builds drama and actually the quietness and the silence is part of it and you, you don't want to sort of override that too much so I don't think well I hope it doesn't change too much I think you know it is like I said earlier it's kind of the perfect TV sport. Now Eurosport are, are trying a few experimental things which are actually working really really well and, and one of them is the introduction of Ronnie O'Sullivan, yeah. which I think a lot of people would be interested to hear your views on that. Because I think, you know, as much as people would have a huge regard, obviously, for Ronnie's knowledge of the game, they might not have thought that the discipline of actually sitting down in a studio or in a commentary booth would have suited him. But he's taken to it incredibly well. What it proves is how much he loves snooker, despite what he says sometimes. Um, and obviously, he's fallen out of love here and there. But he will watch it. I mean, when we were in Belfast, that Mark King, uh, Barry Hawkins final, you know, he was absolutely gripped to that, gripped to it. And I think if you'd said to him maybe you know the week before, Mark, uh, Ronnie, you're going to sit and watch every ball of Mark King, Barry Hawkins, he might have sort of raised an eyebrow. Yeah, he's great, Ronnie. You know, he's very articulate, obviously very charismatic. He's got all the titles to back it up. I mean, that's the other thing I would say. You know, it's not always the case that the, the person who's won the most is the best sort of pundit. But he is sort of the, the dream package, really, I think, for any TV channel. And also, he's a bit unpredictable, which I think is a good thing. He's, n he's not said anything out of line, but there's always the sense that you know, he is a bit of a maverick, and he'll speak his mind. And the thing I'll say about Ronnie is he won't say anything off-camera that he wouldn't say on-camera. He's the same. Jim is the same as well. You know, they will just say what they think. And I think that's very, very refreshing. Is there any player, either past or present, who hasn't 
done commentary with you yet, who you would love to get in the box with you and do some commentary with? I'll tell you who I'd li- like to commentate with, John Virgo, because I grew up listening to John, and he's still, I think, excellent now. Um, and he's, you know, obviously got all the discipline. Um, it's just never happened because he's a BBC man and I'm, I'm Eurosport. Um, but, yeah, he's sort of old school. He's got that link back to the 70s. He knew all the, the players of that time. It'd be interesting to see, I think, who of the current crop, you know, would take up commentary. I would look at someone like Neil Robertson, who, mm. if you heard the podcast I did with him in, in another universe, it's still going on. Um, he's he's a very analytical mind. I think he would really get into it as well. In fact, he's done a bit of punditry for, for Eurosport at the German Masters last year, and he did really well. Um, so it, it'd be interesting to see down the line if he sort of sort of took to that. Um, I think that the interesting thing about commentary is, you know, you, you have a great mix. You look at someone like John Parrott, who very similar actually to Robertson, you know, very articulate and also has titles to back it up. Neil Folds, I think, is probably the best of them all. Neil was a great player in his time, but he didn't win sort of multiple world titles or anything. But that's not the point. He understands the game and he's not forgotten, I think, how hard the game is. But and he's also got you know, a great sense of humour and, 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 and language because ultimately it's about communication. It's about being able to articulate things. And you do an awful lot of talking, you know, even in, in, in the course of, <laughs> yeah. of one snooker match, there's yeah. a lot of talking to be done. So it's a huge amount of hours over the last mm. 10 years. Is there anything in there that you, you still think, oh, I really wish I hadn't said that? <laughs> to be honest, I think you sometimes come off and you have said something and you think, oh, no, why did I do that? You know, you'll misread the score or something. It's mundane like that. And you think, oh, you know, isn't it terrible? And what you realise is nobody cares, really. You might get a little bit of, you know, oh, we don't know what you're talking about, but people move on very quickly. I don't think there's any point dwelling on on things too much. I don't think you should sort of over-congratulate yourself if you think you've done well. I don't think you should be too down on yourself if it hasn't gone too well. Because the great thing is there's always another match to do and you can make amends. There haven't been any disasters, put it that way. Of course, there are times where you come up and you think, oh, I've misread that or misjudged that, but... No, nothing, so far, touch wood, nothing too bad. And you've been so wrapped up in snooker for 20 years, I mean, as press officer and then you know, working as a, as a newspaper reporter primarily and now the commentary over the last decade or so. But somewhere in there, you've found time to basically start a whole other career on the side <laughs> as career. well. Career's yeah. an interesting word. Yeah. yeah, but how did all that come about, all the, the playwriting? Well, it was something I was interested in a few years ago and I did some stuff where I lived in Birmingham with some friends and then it kind of it kind of fell away just because I was doing the snooker and I mean I as you say I was still doing newspapers I'd start the commentary I was doing my blog as well uh, and just sort of was focusing on, on my career really and particularly when I started doing the commentary I wanted to make sure that I you know I did it properly and, and sort of focused on that but what happened was I had a friend a couple of years ago who he directed a play at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and I went to see it and so this would have been 2015, I guess. And I came back, and, I th- and I'd seen a lot of plays while I was there, comedy plays. And we were there this year, mm. uh, last year. And, and as you know, when they bill it as comedy, it doesn't always turn out that way. Well, indeed. And a lot of them just were not funny. And I just thought, you know what, I could do better than this. And which is quite a brazen thing to say, I know. But I, I thought I'm going to write my own play. I'm going to do it next year. And it was as simple as that. And I, I sat down and wrote a play called The Dealist, um, which was a comedy about sort of modern celebrity. And managed to get it on through various means, managed to get it in front of producers, managed to get um, a guy off a reality show to be in it. And and we went and did it, and it was great fun. And um, I've done another play recently, which uh, was nominated for an award. So, yeah, it's something that I, I certainly want to do more of, yeah. Okay. And just finally then, you know, looking at it all now, 20 years involved in snooker, and, you know, so much has changed. You talk about all the political strife there was in the early days in a great place now, the game. Where do you think the game is at? And in particular, um, 
the international side of it and the fact so many Chinese players are coming through, do you think that's very much where the future is now, that they're going to overtake the British players? I think it's hard to say because we've been sort of predicting that for years and it's never quite happened. I mean, when, I, when we were at the... Phil Yates and myself were at the 2005 China Open that Ding won and he beat Stephen Hendry and you think, right, China have got this new young star... Within about five years, half the top 16 will be Chinese, they'll have a world champion, the circuit will be over there. It never quite happened. Obviously, they've got a lot of tournaments, so they've got a lot of players. But I think it, sh- it shows you how hard it is to be a great of the game because with all the resources they have, all the money they put into it, it's only this season they've had another ranking event winner in Liang Wenbo. It is true that China have got a lot of um, new young players coming through and they are talented. And it seems inconceivable that at least one of them won't break through to become a top player. But I think in the immediate sort of term, a lot of it rests actually on Barry Hearn. You know, Barry's come in about six or seven years ago, took over, transformed the circuit, created more playing opportunities. He's not obviously, like anyone, it's not going to be around forever. And it's what comes after him, what sort of foundations he lays to ensure that when he is no longer running the sport, that it's run properly. Because the thing about Barry that people have to remember is he loves snooker to his core. It's where he started. He has an emotional connection with it. And he's not just some businessman looking in, looking to make a profit. He wants to make a profit because he's a businessman. But there is more to it than that. I think, to be honest, you know, the fact that we're still at the Crucible is entirely down to him. You know, the emotional connection he has with Steve Davis there and so on. So a lot depends on, on what comes after him. And I hope that what comes after him is someone who, who loves the game as much as he, he, as he does. Because, you know, it's a great game. I mean, everything I have, like my home, the clothes on my back, everything I have is down to snooker. And I'm really grateful for that. And when I hear players complaining about stuff, young players who think you know they should be paid fortunes, you feel like saying, you know, get your head down, learn your craft. It's an apprenticeship when you're young. Earn the money, work your way up like everyone else has, and appreciate the game for what it is. Because without snooker, a lot of our lives, you know, would have turned out very differently. Okay. Well, there we go. And Dave will be back on this side of the microphone next time. I will. Thank you very much. Sports Social Podcast Network.